Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent, excuse me, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, in 61 BC, so this was about 100 years before the events that we just read in this passage. So within the like contemporaneous, around the same time as Jesus. In 61 BC, uh, there was a great Roman general. He was really the greatest man of his time. Um, and his name was Pompey. And he, in his life, he was called Pompey the Great. He was, uh, and in 61 BC, he had what was called a triumph. And it was his unprecedented third triumph. And in, in Rome, when there's a triumph, it was after um, a general had gone off and won victories in foreign lands for Rome. And then he came back to the city and he had this, this parade entering the city where his, his victories were celebrated. And it was these just extravagant displays of power and wealth and victory. And it was really like the pinnacle of like the Roman civic Life. Um, and here's what, a bit of what Pompey's triumph was like in 61 BC. He had thousands and thousands of soldiers who would have been marching with him into the city of Rome. Uh, right around him in this parade were around were three or like 300 or more uh, foreign kings and rulers, uh, generals, family members of rulers, that, those whom he'd conquered. Uh, followed by a great multitude of, of captives. And in his in his uh, Military exploits, he had basically conquered almost like half, the eastern half of the Mediterranean. Uh, he'd taken over uh, a region called Pontus, which is in modern-day Turkey, uh, a region like Ar- Armenia. Uh, and it also, there was this nasty pirate problem in the Mediterranean that he had solved. So there were all these captive pirates and people from other, other, con- other, other nations in this, the, his entourage. Uh, he had two huge carts that were loaded entirely with gold, crowns, thrones and scepters. Imagine looking at that as he's walking by. The two of the main kings he defeated, their names were Mithridates and Tigranes, they had they, they either fled or they died, so he wasn't able to actually parade them into the city. Uh, but So instead what he did is he, made, he had, Pompey had made two 15-foot tall solid gold images of these two kings and, and pictures of them and their defeat. Uh, one of the, the account not long from that time said there was an infinite number of carts after that that were carrying weapons uh, from the war of the, those whom they they defeated and the and also like the the the, the pointed part of like ship, ships that had been sunk and defeated by the Romans. Pompey himself he rode a chariot 
that was studded with gems. And he apparently was wearing a cloak uh, that was worn by Alexander the Great. The sources at the time were like, I don't know if I believe that. He's just saying that. But it's, it was, that's the image he was putting forward. This, and this, this triumph, it was like a party that went on for two full days. You can just imagine there was maybe the dozens or hundreds of thousands of people were there. Imagine being a person in the audience, seeing Pompey's triumph. Imagine like clawing, like, you know, just like elbowing your way in the crowd to see this man who's, he probably had a laurel, a crown on his head, and his, his face was probably painted red. Imagine looking at him and like, what would you think? The hundreds of thousands of people, you'd think, that man truly, that man is truly a God walking among us. What would you have thought if you were in that audience? Contrast that with what you would have thought if you were someone in the audience for the triumphal entry. <laughs> triumphal entry with what we just read about. Uh, a man who, whom most people don't recognize riding on a donkey with a small band of followers. How would that experience have been different from Pompey's triumph a hundred years earlier. Jesus is the king. He's far more a king than Pompey was. There aren't people around the world gathered today worshiping the name of Pompey. But Jesus is the king. But as we can learn, as we learn from this passage, Jesus is the king. We do learn that from this. But he's also the, he's a humble king and a misunderstood king. Those are my my points for you all this morning. Jesus, so Jesus is king. <laughs> Jesus is king, even though he doesn't have giant gold statues in his parade here. Jesus is actually really intentional in this passage about communicating that he's a king. Uh, so he, the, and the key sign is the colt or donkey, which uh, if you, in this passage, it's, 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 a, it's a colt or it's, it could have been like a colt of a donkey, a small beast of burden that was not a horse. Uh, a full gro- or a full-grown horse. About half of this passage is about Jesus giving instructions to go for to his disciples to go get this beast of burden, so I can ride it into the city. Like th- there's a lot of emphasis on him riding this in. And why? What's what's the big deal with this? Colts, uh, donkeys. These donkeys they were, they were signs of royalty in the Old Testament, and there there are these different passages that 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 Jesus is fulfilling very intentionally. Uh, when the first king of Israel is picked uh, by the prophet Samuel, the, the first king, his name was Saul, uh, Samuel discovers him while he is doing what? While he's out searching for his father's donkeys. Um, when David, who's like the great king of, of Israel, before David dies, and there's, these, there's some turmoil about who's going to be king next, he, give instru- he gives instructions to the one whom he picks to, get, to be after him, his son Solomon, and he says, when you're anointed to be king, Ride my donkey to be anointed king. And Jesus is like being, he's very specifically trying to, showing that he's fulfilling the prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, Listen to this. This is a passage from the the prophet Zechariah. This would have been written hundreds of years before what we read in this passage. This is what it says in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's referring to the city of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is where Jesus is entering. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is very intentionally showing that he's the king here as he enters Jerusalem on this colt. It's, and it, maybe this sounds weird, it's like donkey, king, it, but and it, it was just it was a symbol that was associated with, with kingship. And I would tell you, like, we have, some, we have similar uh, symbols in our own time um, when it comes to our own kings, our own people in power. So consider this. Imagine if I took my Bible, I put my left hand on it, and I raised my hand like this. What comes to mind for you? Maybe think of, like, witnesses at a stand in a trial. The thing that comes to mind for me is uh, president on Inauguration Day, right? Making a, a vow to uphold his his oaths of office. Uh, th- there's something about like how just that image of like a, a Bible, the Bible in an interesting way in our, in our country is it's something of like a symbol of being the president. It's interesting. In a similar way, it's like in a deeper, more profound way, a cult is a symbol of kingship in this passage. Um, other symbols of kingship, laying of cloaks as he enters, that's, that's, that's what you do for kings. You don't do that just for any random Joe Schmoes. You do that for kings. So Jesus is the king. Well, he's, he's not just any random king. He's the king who is the promised one of Israel in line, the line of David. Uh, to fully understand him, you have to know who, where he comes from, that he's the, the king of Israel. Yet like Pompey, unlike Pompey, he's a king who is humble and misunderstood. So he's humble. Um, he's a humble king. Imagine this. Thinking again of inaugurations and presidents. The most uh, attended inauguration in our country's history was uh, in, I, maybe, there, maybe some people will contest this, I don't know. As far as I know, it was in 2008, uh, which was Obama's first term, um, and there were reported to be like 2 million people who filled up the, the mall uh, for, his, for his inauguration. Um, it was, yeah. It was a try. You know, there there are certain ways. Like we still do these triumphs too. Um, imagine Barack Obama, you know, the president-elect about to be sworn into office. Um, instead of riding into this big inauguration uh, in a limousine or being with celebrities or coming in on a helicopter, uh, imagine if to get there he took a, bu- a mega bus from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and he didn't get one of the good seats that you pay, like, an extra few bucks for, uh, but he actually, he's sitting, like, top, backwards, like, really rickety whenever you go over bumps, um, and he rode, rode that into, like, an inconvenient bus stop location um, to then walk to his inauguration. You'd be like, whew, I wouldn't have expected that. The one who has power over millions, riding megabus. So, in a way, it is here, with Jesus riding in on a colt, on, on a donkey. Even though a donkey is a, is a symbol of kingship and power, um, it's also just a symbol of peace and humility. And the, the prophet Zechariah, in that passage I read, what does it say about the king? That he's humble, and he comes riding in on a donkey as a proof of, of his humility. He, Jesus doesn't come in like Pompey, riding a gem-studded chariot, he doesn't come in riding a horse. That's what, that's what warlords would do. Jesus comes in as, as the, the king who brings peace. He's humble. He's also misunderstood, though. This is a major theme in the Gospel of Mark. Consider again the, the Obama's inauguration in 2008. After showing up on, Meg, on Megabus, 
Obama arrives, um, and you know, hopefully he's worn good walking shoes because whenever you go to the mall, you need good walking shoes. And he he walks to where the inauguration is going to happen, and there are there are like maybe a few hundred people there. They've you know they prepared like the whole mall for seating, but or for seating for people to be they were thought to be standing room only. Uh, but there are a few hundred people there, and uh, as you begin like talking to people who are there at the in the crowd, you begin to see that like they're they're not entirely sure what they're doing there or what's going on or who this Barack Obama guy is supposed to be. Uh, and they're, you're like, they don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> That's kind of the, the picture of what happens with this so-called triumphal entry of Jesus. And we don't, we don't see this. Uh, it, I mean, you can see it some that, that pe- the people in the crowd do understand what's going on somewhat. Okay? So like some of the signs we can see that they, they are getting something of a glimmer of an understanding of what's happening is in what they're, what they're shouting. You know, people in the crowds, they're shouting, Hosanna! And Hosanna's a a word that's hard to translate, uh, that, which is the reason why, is it, because it's hard to translate, we still sing it in our songs. We still sing Hosanna. Um, and Hosanna, it, it basically means praise you, save us, um, it, which is certainly a proper thing to say to a king. It's something that's said to kings in the Old Testament on a handful of occasions. Um, and they, also, they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, so they, which is, again, David was an ancient king, in his coming kingdom, so that they seem to understand some things that this, this man coming in is a king. But I would, I would say to you, like, it's, it's actually ambiguous in this text, and as we look at other gospel accounts of the triumphal entry, it's ambiguous how big the crowd is, and if they really get it. Um, if you, the, who are the people shouting? Was in this passage it says, it was those who went before and those who were following shouted. Which, if you look at the other gospel accounts, if you look at Luke's account, who does Luke say were the ones in the, in the part of this, this crowd? He said, the multitude of, his, of Jesus' disciples. So the ones who were praising Jesus, it probably was mostly Jesus' own disciples, which could have been a big crowd. Um, and keep in mind, like Jerusalem's, at this time, Jerusalem's not a, a desolate city. This is the, the beginning of Passover week. The city was just filled to the gills, which is why Jesus and they're staying in Bethany a little bit ways away, because there's no room to stay in the city. It's packed. But there's this probably smallish group who are singing these praises to him. Um, and if you look at Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, he really draws out that, that people don't know what's going on. So in Matthew's account, he, he kind of gives a voice to the crowd, and they're like, the crowd's like, who is this? Who is this Barack Obama what? That's a weird name. Who, you know, who is this guy who's showing up, uh, who, who's walking in here? Which it, it, they don't know who he is. They don't know who he is. And then they say, who? And he's like, oh, they're like, oh, he's Jesus. Uh, he's a prophet from Nazareth. Which is it's not a wrong answer, uh, but it's not what Jesus is emphasizing here in writing in to Jerusalem on a colt. Uh, he is a prophet, but he's showing that he's a king. So they get the, they, they don't really get the answer right. They don't they don't fully understand who he is. Jesus is the humble king who comes into Jerusalem um, and is misunderstood. He's misunderstood. Um, and this is something we see in the Gospel of Mark, is that he's misunderstood by, uh, by the crowds. He's misunderstood by his opponents. He's misunderstood even by his closest friends, his, the disciples. And perhaps this is all why the ending of this passage just is so anticlimactic. 
I don't know if you saw that, where they, you know, they, they, he's the king who comes in. It's like the, there's this imagery, and he, he's going to do this, but it's like he's coming in as the king to cleanse the temple, which he will do that. We'll read about that in the coming weeks. Um, but he gets to the temple mount. He gets to the, the temple, and it's, it's kind of like he and the disciples, they, like, they kind of look around, and it's like, well, it's kind of late. I guess we should go home. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's very much the opposite of Pompey's triumph that I told you about at the beginning. Jesus is the king, but he's humble, he's misunderstood, or even a, perhaps a tighter way of putting it. He's meek. Meekness and weakness are not the same thing. Meekness is withheld, it's restrained strength. Jesus is strong, he does care. In the passages, in the weeks ahead, we're going to see him turning over tables in the temple. He's strong, he cares. But he's a king who comes to us as one who restrains his strength. So taking this, this passage in mind, um, I want to offer, offer a couple of words to different, group, different groups of people who could be sitting in this room today. Um, to those of you here who, first off, a word to you, those of you here who would Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you consider yourself barely a Christian, but you're, you're seeking out the, the, you're trying to figure out the truth of the faith. You consider yourself, maybe you consider yourself a skeptic. Um, I, the folks who I've talked to um, who are wrestling with, with doubts or questions about the faith, or who have just rejected the faith, um, it seems like it boils down to two questions to me um, that folks have. And the two questions are, is this true? And is this good? And this isn't everyone, but a lot of the folks I know, they, tend to, they often refuse the faith, um, not because of the first question, is this true, but especially because of the second question, is this good? Like, is this faith actually something that's good for human beings? Um, and oddly, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of times Christians respond to that question by answering the first question about whether or not it's true, instead of talking about whether or not it's good. Is it good? Is what we read about this passage today. Is this good news in any way? Is it good that that we worship a a king who's like the one I just described? Meek and mild, who lays his glory by, as we just sang. Instead of a king who's like Pompey the Great. Um, There are a number of different ways to summarize the Christian faith in a sentence. Here are a few. It's, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven, to pay the price for our sins. In Jesus, we are a new creation, freed from sin and death. All great summaries. Here's the tightest summary I can come up with. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the tightest summary I have of what the Christian faith is. He's the king. The world was created by him, through him, and for him. And it is right that we recognize that everything belongs to him, including ourselves, and worship him. It is such good news. It is so good that the one who is Lord, that's the bedrock of what it means to be a Christian, is this kind of king. It's a king who's experienced the worst of what we have to go through. This is a king who walked in loneliness, who's coming to like the, his place of glory and no one knows who he is. This is a king who went from the absolute highest to the absolute lowest 
the point of death. Because he loved us. Because he loved you. And he didn't do it, he didn't do it just for like a photo op. But he did it because he loves you. He truly humbled himself. John chapter 1 puts it this way. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the king. It's good news. It's good news. You won't find a better king than this one, one who has, who walk, who has been suffered as we have has been te- and is tempted as we have been. Another word, and the word to everyone, uh, to those of you who, are, who I was just speaking to, anyone else, whether you're nine years or 99 years, whether you've been to church one time or a thousand times. Um, I think one of the devil's uh, greatest lies, one that I've been really dwelling on um, over the past few months, maybe his greatest lie, um, is that if I satisfy my desires, if I get what I want, I'll be happy. It's a lie. It's a lie. If you don't believe me, uh, so many, I know many of you who are online or in this room agree with me, like, so uh, I just like, I just want to get to the end of the day, I just want to like watch Netflix. (laughs) It's like, if you don't believe me, like, go home right now and watch, binge watch Netflix for six hours and see if I'm wrong. (laughs) See how you feel at the end. If we get what we want, we don't, we aren't really satisfied. Um, and this, it seems to me like this is the key difference between a king like Pompey and a king like Jesus, or any Pompey, I'm, being, I'm beating up poor Pompey, any, any worldly god, any idol, false god. False gods, they give us what we want. They give us food, games, spectacle, comfort, entertainment, ease, recognition. They always impress. But Jesus is the king who calls us to surrender what we want and follow him. And in so doing, he changes what we want. He changes our desires to align with his desires. Pompey always impresses. On first glance, Jesus almost never does. So with this contrast in mind, as you look at this new year, 2022, what are one or two things that you, that you your, what are your desires? What are the things that you're saying, if I get this, then I will truly be happy? What are the worldly riches that you insist on receiving, on clenching? What are the, the places where you're saying, I have to work out more this year so I'll finally be beautiful and respectable? I have to make these financial decisions so that I'll finally be safe. I have to get my child across these developmental lines so that I'll finally know that I'm a good mom or dad. I have to move forward in my career in this way so that I will finally feel like I'm not a failure. What are some of the wants that you have this year? What are some of the ways that you're turning to kings other than Jesus because they're better at giving you what you want than this meek, humble Jesus is? And what would it look like this year you sought out first the desires that are close to the heart of this king. Sought out other things primarily to the king who came in humility. Here are some of the virtues of the kingdom of heaven. Here are how these questions, these New Year's resolutions change. How can I be a man who, or a woman, who is poor in spirit this year? 
How can I mourn? How can I be meek this year? In what ways should I hunger and thirst for righteousness this year? Another way of putting that question is, what are, the, what are the sins in my life that I've either hidden or with which I've grown complacent and need to confess and turn away from them with the help of others? How can I extend mercy to this year to those who least deserve it? How can I be pure in heart and devoted to God this year? How can I make peace with others this year, with those who least deserve it in my life, with those whom I've been avoiding for a long time? I think these questions are a bit closer to the heart of the king we read about in this passage. Jesus is the humble king. He suffered as you suffered, been tempted as, you've, as you're tempted, and he invites you to join him on the path that leads to life. So I invite you at the beginning of this new year to repent of the ways that you want everything in this world to change so you can get what you want. Repent of the ways you want everything in the world to change except for yourself. Bring that before Jesus and cry, Hosanna. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Save me. Lay that before Jesus. He's gentle and lowly in heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.